Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 of the Great Commentary of Cornelius Elipetti, St. Matthew's Gospel, by Cornelius Elipetti. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. St. Augustine says that the day on which Christ was baptized was a Sunday, though John Lucidus was of the opinion that the day was Friday. What is certain from tradition is that Christ was baptized on the sixth day of January the same day of the month on which he had been adorned by the Magi thirty years before, whence the church commemorates the event on that day. The Ethiopians on the 6th of January, in memory of Christ's baptism, not only sprinkle themselves with water, but immerse themselves in it. The faithful in Greece also were accustomed, about midnight before the 6th of January, to draw water from the nearest river or fountain, which, by the gift of God, remained sweet for many years, as St. Chrysostom expressly testifies. St. Epiphanus adds that on that day the Nile was turned into wine. About the eleventh day of the month, Tybus, our sixth of January, Christ's first miracle was wrought in Cana of Galilee, when water was made wine. Wherefore, in various places until this very time, the same thing takes place, as a divine sign for a testimony to unbelievers. Various rivers and fountains, which are turned into wine, are the proof of this. Siberius, a fount of the city of Caria, becomes wine at the very hour in which Christ said, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. Carassa in Arabia is another example. I myself have drunk of the fountain of Sybris, and our brethren of the fount of Gerasa, which is in a temple of the martyrs. Many testify the same concerning the Nile. Moreover, that the water of Jordan received by reason of Christ's baptism, in it the gift of incorruption. Gretiser testifies. Let us add this, he says, that the waters of Jordan, after Christ had consecrated them by his baptism in them, have been endowed with the gift of incorruption that illustrious prince, Nicholas Christopher Redzilville, in his Hariporumcum Herosolmite, says the water of the Jordan is extremely turbid, but very wholesome, and when kept in vessels does not become putrid. This I have found to be the case with some which I have brought with me. Christ appears to have been baptized and washed by John, not only as to his head, but with respect to the rest of his body. I think so, because such was the manner of the Jews, who were accustomed to denude themselves of their clothes, and undergo their ceremonial baptisms, and lustrations naked. Jesus therefore condescended to appear naked before John, and he underwent this indignity for our sakes, that Adam's and our nakedness and shame, induced by sin, he might clothe and cover by his grace. Whence also, as Bede testifies, a church was erected by the faithful on the spots where the clothes of Christ were deposited when he was baptized. Bede adds that the same place was adorned with a noble monastery and church, which was dedicated in honor of John the Baptist. Gregory of Tours writes about the same place. There is a place by Jordan where the Lord was baptized. The water flows into a certain bay in which even now lepers are cleansed. When they come thither, they wash frequently, 
until they are cleansed from their infirmity. As long as they remain there, they are fed at the public expense. When they are cleansed, they depart to their own homes. This spot is five miles from where the Jordan loses itself in the Dead Sea. The place is called in St. John's Gospel, Anon, near to Salem. It was not far from Zarthan and Jericho, where the children of Israel under Joshua passed over on dry ground, that it might be signified that the same Christ, who once led the Israelites over Jordan into the land of promise, will by baptism bring his faithful people to heaven. And as under Joshua the waters were driven back, so under Christ, as our baptized leader, our sins turned back, says St. Augustine. Again, Elias divided the waters of Jordan when he was about to be taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire, that it might be signified that those who pass through the waters of Christ's baptism shall have an entrance into heaven opened to them by the fire of the Holy Ghost. Thus St. Thomas, and Jesus when he was baptized, etc. Luke adds, Jesus being baptized and praying, whence it is plain that not by virtue of John's baptism, but by the merit of Christ's humility and prayer, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Straightway, this word is best referred, not to the words coming up out of the water, but to the heavens were opened. Lo, the heavens were opened, Mark has. He saw the heavens opened. He, that is, Jesus, John too, and others who were present, doubtless saw them, since it was for their sakes this was done. Once Matthew says, they were opened, i.e. unto him or for him. That is, they were seen to be opened in his honor, that Christ might make manifest that heaven is open unto all through Christ, says St. Chrysostom. Also, that the heavenly power of baptism might be pointed out, because by it carnal men become heavenly and spiritual, and by it are called, and, as it were, taken by the hand to heaven. So, St. Thomas, you will inquire in what way were the heavens opened unto Christ. It is replied, it was not the actual substance of the sky which was opened and rent in twain, for this is naturally impossible and supernaturally unneeded. Neither were the heavens opened by a merely imaginary vision, as they were opened to Ezekiel. But there was in the upper region of the air a Hades visible to the senses, from which visible aperture both the dove and the voice of the Father appeared to come down upon Christ. Such Hadeses appear not unfrequently in the atmosphere, concerning which see Aristotle on meteors. Huron, Prado, the Judas priest, on the words, the heavens were opened, says, there was an appearance as though the sky were opened and divided by thunders and lightnings, and from the opening the Father's voice burst forth as thunder, for thunder is always accompanied by lightning. Indeed, lightning is the cause of thunder, although the thunder is always heard after the lightning, because sound travels more slowly than light. And saw, Syriac, looked up at, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, Egyptian, in the form of a dove, you will ask first, was this a true and real dove, or was it only the appearance and likeness of a dove? Saints Jerome, Anselm, and Thomas, Salmeron, and others think that it was a real dove, and this is probable. It is, however, equally, or rather more probable, that it was not a real dove, 
but only the shape of a dove, formed by an angel, agitated and moved so that it should descend upon Christ. The reason is that all the evangelists seem to indicate this. St. Matthew says, as if a dove. Mark, as it were, a dove. John, like a dove. Luke, in a bodily shape, like a dove. There was, therefore, the appearance and similitude only, not the reality of a dove. Nor was there any need of a real dove, but of its likeness for a symbolical signification, that by such a symbol those gifts of Christ, of which I shall speak presently, might be designated. In such wise were the heavens opened, not in reality but in appearance, as I have already said. This was the opinion of St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Chrysostom, Theophylact, Lyra, etc. You will urge, was it then a phantasm, a merely fancied dove? I reply by no means. It was a real solid body, having the form of a dove, as St. Augustine teaches, not indeed assumed hypostatically by the Holy Spirit, as the humanity of Christ was assumed by the Word, as Tertullian appears to have thought. But it was only an index and a symbol of the Holy Ghost. It was thus taken because the dove is a most meek, simple, innocent, fruitful bird, very admirable, but very jealous. Such in like manner is the Holy Ghost, who endowed the soul of Christ at the very moment of his conception, with these qualities of meekness and the rest. And what was now done was, by this sign of the dove, to signify that the Holy Ghost had done this, and to declare it to the people publicly. You will inquire, in the next place, why the Holy Ghost descended upon Christ in the form of a dove, upon the apostles in the shape of tongues of fire. St. Chrysostom answers, one, because Christ came in the flesh and into the world, meek like a dove, for the remission of sins and for the release of sinners. But in the day of judgment he will come as a severe judge to punish the wicked. Two, and more literally, the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles in the likeness of fire, because he endued them with fervor and ardor in preaching. Again, the dove represented excellently well the Holy Sevenfold Spirit, or his sevenfold gifts which he poured out upon Christ, as Isaiah predicted. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and godliness, and shall fill him with the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. All these gifts are a positively signified by the dove, for as St. Thomas expounds, the dove tarries by flowing streams, and when in the waters she beholds the reflection of a hawk, she is able to escape it. Here is the gift of wisdom. 2. The dove selects the best grains of corn and places them by themselves in a heap. Here is the gift of understanding. 3. The dove brings up the young of others. Behold the gift of counsel. 4. The dove does not tear with her beak. Behold the gift of knowledge. 5. The dove was without gall and bile. Lo, the gift of piety or godliness. 6. The dove maketh her nest in the rocks. See the gift of true strength. 7. The dove utters a mournful plaint instead of a song. Behold the gift of fear, wherewith Christ and his saints wail for sins, whether their own or those of others. Again, the dove is the symbol of the reconciliation and renewal of the world, which the Holy Spirit has wrought through Christ. Hence his symbol was a dove 
bearing a green olive branch to Noah, signifying that the deluge and God's anger were at an end. Lastly, because the dove is an amicable and social bird, it denotes the union of the faithful in the church, which the Holy Spirit affects through the baptism of Christ. So St. Thomas, in fine, the dove is very fair, it delights in sweet odors, and it dearly loves its young. So too Christ is most fair, he delights in the odor of virtues, and dearly loves his children. As the Holy Spirit thus descended upon Christ, so has he often descended in the form of a dove upon illustrious Christians, more especially upon doctors, bishops, and pontiffs of the church, and thus as they were, consecrated them. St. Eleucadius, the disciple of St. Apollinarius, apostle of Ravenia, when a dove had flown upon his head, was ordained bishop of Ravenia. After a life illustrious for sanctity, he migrated to heaven, A.D. 115. Thus a dove flew down upon the head of St. Aldertus, in the presence of the clergy, and designated him the successor of St. Apollinarius, the second bishop of Ravenia. St. Marcellinius, in like manner, was designated bishop of the same city, A.D. 230. St. Fabian, in consequence of a dove lighting upon his head, was elected bishop of Rome. When St. Gregory was writing his works, the Holy Spirit, in the likeness of a dove, was seen to instill into his ear what he wrote. So St. Basil, who wished to be baptized in the same river Jordan as Christ was, in celebrating Mass, was surrounded by a celestial light, and gave orders for a dove to be made of pure gold, and a portion of the consecrated host to be placed in it, and suspended it above the altar. So Amphilochius. He adds that St. Ephraim saw the Holy Ghost in the likeness of a dove of fire, sitting upon St. Basil, wherefore he exclaimed, Truly is Basil a column of fire. Truly the Holy Ghost speaks by his mouth. Flavian the Patriarch, by the command of an angel, consecrating St. John Chrysostom to be a priest, beheld a white dove fly down upon his head. Leo Augustus relates this in his life of St. Chrysostom. This was the reason why the impostor Mohammed tamed a dove and accustomed it to fly to him by placing in his ear grains of corn, which the dove picked up and ate, and by this means he persuaded the people that the Holy Spirit was his friend, and dictated the Quran to him, and revealed the most secret purposes of God. He also caused the dove to bring him a scroll, on which was written in letters of gold, Whosoever shall tame a bull, let him be king. But he had brought up a bull, which of course he easily tamed, and was therefore saluted as king by the foolish people. So the authors of the life of Muhammad. And lighting upon him piously, says St. Bernard, not unsuitably came a dove, to point out the Son of God, for nothing so well corresponds to a lamb as a dove. As the lamb among the beasts, so is the dove among birds. There is the utmost innocence in each, the utmost gentleness, the utmost guileness. What is so opposed to all malice as a lamb and a dove? They know not how to injure or do harm. And behold a voice, etc. From the opened heaven a dove glided down upon the head of Christ. And whilst it sat upon him, there came a voice. This is my son. The voice explained the symbol of the dove, that it had reference to Christ and to him alone. This voice in the person of the Father was framed by the ministry of angels. Say Victor Antioch.
here was first revealed to the world the mystery of the Holy Trinity, which had been darkly indicated to the Jews. The Father manifested himself by a voice. The Son was seen in the flesh. The Holy Ghost was visible in the form of a dove, that it might be signified that the faith of the Holy Trinity was about to be unfolded, and that the baptism of Christ was conferred in their name. For although all these things, viz. heaven opened, the forming of the voice, the descent of the dove, were as regards operations, ad extra, as theologians say, common to the whole trinity, yet each several person was represented by the aforenamed symbols. This is my son, Greek, hoios, i.e., the Son of God the Father, by nature, not by adoption, as the angels and holy men are sons of God. Therefore the Son of God is not a creature, but the Creator, consubstantial with God the Father, as was defined by the Nicene Council. Mark and Luke have in different words, but with the same meaning, Thou art my Son. And it is probable that these last were the exact words used, not merely because of the consensus of two evangelists, but because when Jesus was looking up into heaven and praying to the Father, it is probable that the words would be immediately and directly addressed to him. So Jansen, Maldonatus, and others. My beloved son, Greek, Agapetus, i.e. only and chiefly beloved, through whom all others are beloved. For no one is beloved by God save those whom Christ loves. The Syriac has most beloved in whom I am well pleased. As it were, thou only, O Christ, art perfectly in all things, and infinitely pleasing unto me, and no one is pleasing unto me save through thee. For by thee I am well pleased with all the human race, with whom I was offended because of Adam's sin. The Hebrew signifies both to please and to be propitious or reconciled, because thou art the brightness of my glory and the express image of my substance. Hebrews 1.3. Thou art immeasurably pleasing unto me. In thee nothing ever displeases, but all things please me. Thou art he in whom I have always delight. And for thy sake all thy disciples and followers, that is to say, all holy Christians, are pleasing unto me. There is an allusion to Noah, who alone of his generation pleased God. As therefore Noah was well pleasing unto God, especially when he offered the sacrifice unto him, with which he was propitiated, and promised that he would no more destroy the world by the waters of a flood, so much more when Christ offered himself to God as a peculiar and special victim, did he cause God to be propitious to the whole human race. By this voice was Christ constituted by God, the Father, the universal doctor and legislator of the world. The voice added, Hear ye him. Hear Christ, believe in him, obey him. He hath come forth from my bosom. He will show you my mysteries, things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He will open to you the way of peace, the way to heaven, the way to happiness. He will proclaim to you the glad tidings of the kingdom of heaven, even such divine things as eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have they come into the heart of man. Hence when the Magdalene sat at the feet of Jesus, and diligently listened to him, it was said to her, Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Very well, saith St. Leo, this is my son who is from me, and with me from everlasting, 
This is my son, who is not separated from me in deity, dividing in power, severed by eternity. This is my son, my very own, not created of any other substance, but begotten of myself. This is my son, by whom all things were made. This is my son, who sought not robbery, that equality which he hath with me. He attained it by no presumption, but abiding in the form of my glory, and in order that he might fulfill our common purpose for the restoration of the human race. He bowed down to the unchangeable Godhead, even to the form of a servant. In him, therefore, I am in all things well pleased, and by his preaching I am manifested, and by his humility I am glorified. Hear ye him, therefore, without delay, for he is the truth and the life. He is my strength and my wisdom. Hear him of whom the lips of the prophets sung. Hear him who hath redeemed the world by his blood, who by his cross hath prepared for you a ladder by which ye may ascend up to heaven. End of chapter 3